1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Let's read this together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Would you please join me in prayer this morning? Father, You are the God of peace. You are the God of peace who through Jesus Christ has brought all who have trusted in Him and Your promises into a friendship with You. You have removed, Father, our guilt and our punishment at the cross. You have clothed us in righteousness. And now, You deal with us as blood-bought sons and daughters. Father, thank You so much for this. You are so kind to us, so merciful and gracious. You are so patient with us, Father. We thank You. We praise You. There is none like You. There is no one who forgives. There is no one who is just and merciful at the same time like You are. There is no one who loves and adopts like You do. Father, thank You for these great riches these great gifts of heaven bestowed upon us. We do not deserve it. We haven't earned it. We haven't even pursued it apart from Your grace that has awakened us to long for eternal things. Father, we come to You this morning asking that You would provide for us. That You would help us. That You would teach us things that we need for life and godliness. Indeed, You have provided to us everything we need through the great shepherd of the sheep whom You did not leave dead in the grave, but You raised Him up and sat Him at Your right hand and placed Him as the head over all things to the church. He is our great shepherd. We will never outgrow our great shepherd. He is the one who grants to us all that we need for life and godliness and who calls us to His own glory and excellence, and who has given to us great and precious promises 
by whom we partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world that is deep within us through deceitful desires. Father, this great shepherd of the sheep is all that we need because he has all we need. He is all we need. And so, Father, teach us to come to him and to follow him and to trust him more and more. Father, even through the time that we spend together today in your word and look back again on some lessons from Ruth, teach us to come to the rock who is Christ and to find our all in all in him. Thank you that through him, you work in us, giving us all we need to do what is pleasing in your sight, working in us to do what is pleasing in your sight so that Christ would be glorified forever and ever. Father, today it is our prayer as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ that this would not just be a religious performance of external activities and words, that that words would be human and powerless. That's not what we long for, Father, that, that the words that we hear would only fall on our ears and fall to the ground. Father, we ask that your words today would penetrate out our hearts and it would change us and that you would accompany your word with spirit and power. Teach us as your people. Shape us into your image. Prepare us to do good works that you have sovereignly ordained for us beforehand that we should walk in. And all the different things that we're going to talk about today from your word, apply them to our hearts. Holy Spirit, grown within us, you know the will of God for us. And you ask for that which is according to His will. Thank you that you have given to us all that we need in Christ. If you laid down His life for us, how will you also not with us, with Him, freely give us all things? Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. May we be assured of that even more this morning. We pray for our good, for your glory, for the exaltation of Christ and the joy of the church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> that remind, let me remind you again as we come back to this, really this final study in the book of Ruth. And I originally told you that um, I had 10 applications in that first sermon of our final applications. And so I've truncated it to seven. So I'm hoping that this will be our last sermon. For Ruth, and then Lord willing, we'll look to something different next week as we begin the month of October. The main purpose, again, of the book of Ruth, let me remind you, is that in steadfast love, in this loyal, sacrificial, steadfast, unwavering love, Yahweh, our God, by his sovereign hand of providence, faithfully does all that he's promised to to do, everything he's promised to do in order to bring his chosen people, his covenant people, from fall to glory. In order to fulfill all of his redemptive plans in Christ and in order to bring glory to his name forever. That's the point of Ruth. We see God doing that firsthand in Ruth's life and in Naomi's life and in Boaz's life and the life of the people of Israel. It's an amazing story. But at the end of this series, we've also taken up Paul's hermeneutic. 
to say, well, we can look at these stories as examples. We want to see Christ first and foremost and God's redemptive plans through Him. Indeed, Jesus taught us that that's the point of the, New Te- of the Old Testament and all of Scripture. But Paul also told us that these things are here for our example. You see that in this text. But not so that we may depend upon our own strength. Not so that we may turn to ourselves and find some sort of moral fortitude, but so that we may look to our rock and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and find all in Him to avoid the temptations that Paul has spoken of in this text and to walk in obedience to our precious Savior. And so with that, we've looked at some areas of example already throughout the book of Ruth. We've looked so far at four. The first one was, and you can see it in your outline, responding faithfully when common sense runs cross-grain with following Christ. We saw that in the life of Elimelech when his family needed food. and He didn't stay and rely upon God's promises. He went a worldly way. He followed human advice. He, he looked to human provisions rather than trusting in the Lord with all his heart. Secondly, we looked at responding faithfully to the Lord's discipline. Again, taking a negative example in, in Ruth 1, 1-5, looking at how long they stayed in Moab and how God had begun to chasten them, and yet they didn't respond well to that chastening. They continued and pursued wives and longer time and provisions from Moab until finally God did bring them back. And so we looked at how to respond faithfully to the Lord's discipline, even His very light discipline in our lives. Don't we want to be children who are very responsive to our Heavenly Father? To think, to think deeply about His discipline. Hebrews 12, we're reminded of, of that text where it says, do not think lightly about the discipline of the Lord and not to be weary by His discipline. Thirdly, we looked last week at responding faithfully to the opportunities that God gives us to share the Gospel. Here we found a positive example to turn to Christ and ask Him to form in us. We saw the importance of having biblical content in our Gospel message, but also to call people to respond to the Gospel properly, which is repentance and faith, and to give them a sense of the cost that will come with following Christ. We see that positively in the life of Naomi when she talks to her two daughters-in-law and and invites them to follow her back to the the land of Judah and Bethlehem. Secondly, last week, and number four in your outline, we looked at this concept all through the book of Ruth about fullness, emptiness, and fullness, and how God takes human fullness and He humbles it. And He brings about a, a humble emptiness of our own wisdom and our own strength and our own resources and so on, so that He can fill us with Himself and so that we can be useful to Him and bring Him glory. This morning, let's look at a fifth, sixth, and seventh, Lord willing, um, and finish our time of application together. The fifth one that I'd like to look at this morning is finding God's will through Scripture, prayer, in providence. I think this is a very important lesson that we can observe and take to heart as we've studied the book of Ruth. Now, isn't this a big question that all of us have dealt with and wrestled with as followers of Christ? How often throughout our lives have we said and prayed to our Heavenly Father, Father, what is your will for me here? 
what would you have me to do? When we are uncertain. In fact, that should be the prayer of our hearts constantly, shouldn't it? That's the one thing we should be praying all the time. Father, change me. Father, what is your will? That's what we hear from Jesus' own lips when he was on earth as the God-man. Your will be done. What is your will? How do we as children of God know and do his will for our lives? And three things come together to lead us into the will of God. And we'll see these three aspects at work in the life of Naomi and Ruth as well. We'll look at it along the way. But let's, let's begin to talk through this and then we'll bring in the points of contact with Ruth and Naomi's lives. The three things that we need to look to to discern God's will for our lives is Scripture, prayer, and providence. Scripture, prayer, and providence. How do these three work together to lead us into God's will? Well, as children of God, we obviously read the Bible to learn what, is, what God has revealed will is for us. Revealed will. His revealed will we learn in the Scripture. These are things we read in the Word that we must do. That's the clearest kind of will that God has for us. The things we must do. There's no, there's no question about it. We just read the Bible and we see it. Like, wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents, etc. There's so many clear commands, things that God tells us in His Word. This is what we must do. We call this the revealed will of God. It's the clear will of God. There's no doubt. We just, we just find it in Scripture. There are things we read in the Word that we must not do. Right? That's very clear, no question in our minds. You shall not lie. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, etc. These are things that are so very clear. Many texts even say very clearly, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So this is how you begin to discern the will of God. You open Scripture and you simply discover what He has said we must do as His children, what He has said we must not do, and those things where God said, this is my will. So there's no mystery for us in that. None of us have trouble with those things, other than at times submitting our heart to God's will. There's no mystery for us in what we call the revealed will of God. But, but as we read God's Word, we also find there things that we may do. Good things that are not in violation of God's revealed will. Things like education. What level of education should I pursue? Where should I pursue my education? Marriage. Should I be married? To whom should I be married? Uh, what ministry should I involve myself in? Uh, what job should I have? Where should I move to? What church should I attend? And so on. As a child of God reads these things, these many things described in God's Word, and is filled with the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God begins to shape that child's desires to reflect God's own desires. Sometimes I've thought of the Word of God almost like a catalog of things. You know, you pick up a hunting catalog or an interior decorating catalog and you open it and you say, oh, that's beautiful. I want that. I'd like to have that. Not in a bad way. It's a good thing. It, it would do you good to have it. And so you're like, I long for that. 
Well, that's the Bible for the child of God. You open it and you see this is what God has promised. This is what's available to us in Christ. These are the things that God plans to make of us. These are the things that we can enjoy. I want that. I want to be like that. I want that to be working well in my life. And so the Spirit of God stirs deep desires in the heart of a child of God to progress in his life so that he or she may walk into God's particular will for them. And so we see the effect of of Psalms like Psalm 37, 4, and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give to you to the desires of your heart. And I think that means so much more than just God is saying yes to what you want. He's actually forming in you the very desires that you sense. He's giving you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord, verse 5 says. Trust in Him, and He will act. So that becomes the way of life for a believer. Delighting yourself in the Lord through His Word. He begins to shape your desires. Then you commit your way to the Lord, trust Him to providentially bring it about, and you see Him act in your behalf. So in the case of, in the case, in in that case of things that are not directly forbidden by God's revealed will, but neither are they directly commanded by God's revealed will, how do we know? How do we know if God wants us to go ahead and do those things? Sometimes we call that not the revealed will of God, but what? The secret will of God. This is the sovereign will of God. These aren't things that God directly tells you. you Steve, you need to go and work at this place. You're not going to find that in the Bible. How do you know then? It's okay though. It's not like God has commanded you don't or definitely do, but should I? And this is where Naomi and Ruth found themselves. They knew the Scripture which allowed leveret law to them. Remember we talked about that? This was available to them. That became a desire of their heart. They, they had the law of God in front of them to say, it is, you're free to pursue a kinsman redeemer. To redeem your land. And to, to develop it. And to provide for Naomi. And to provide for Ruth. The law of God allowed that. They had desired for that to happen to them. Clearly, they knew about these things and were even Ruth, or even Naomi was praying toward these things and encouraging Ruth to pursue them. Now, how do they know if this is God's will for them? And with whom? And when? And where and how are they to pursue this? None of those aspects of God's will were clearly revealed to them in the Scriptures though they were not necessarily forbidden by what the Scriptures did reveal. and That's where the struggle came for Ruth and Naomi. Is it Boaz? How do we pursue him? How do we ask him? Who should, should it be Ruth? Should it be Naomi? Think about, back up for a minute, think about all the different scenarios that could have happened in the pursuit of following God's law and their desire. And this aspect of what God's will is, was what we call His secret will. Not openly revealed in plain Scripture. Only God knows His secret will before it happens. And only His providence will unfold and reveal it as it happens. And that's what we began to see through the book of Ruth as well. God providentially bringing Ruth and Boaz together and so on. 
So then how do you and I, as a child of God, walk into that secret will of God? Because it's not going to come as you sit quietly in prayer and hear a voice. That's not how God normally reveals to you His secret will. There are three things that come together. Scripture, prayer, and providence. So I have some points that I hope will be helpful to you in this. And there are eight of them. And I'm just giving you a tag word, and then I'll describe the tag word. And hopefully this, this will be a blessing and a help to you. Here are some steps that, that, that I think will be helpful for us to follow that will lead us into the secret will of God. And I'm, I'm so encouraged that this is such a timely... I, all of these, these things that we're learning from Ruth, I think are so timely for us. There's so many young people here that are growing up so quickly. And these are things they need to consider as they walk in God's ways, right? And so these are things we as parents should continue to pursue in our lives as well and help our children to pursue them as well. The first word. Here's where we always begin. The word. Don't expect to ever know God's secret will for you unless you are in the word daily. Be daily diligently filling your mind with the Word of God. You should not expect to be led into the, into the secret providence of God if you're not filled with His revealed will for you. Psalm 119.105, what does it say? Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is, this is the nuts and bolts of life, isn't it? You want to know God's will for you? Be in His Word. That's how He shapes your desires. That's how He leads you toward what He has planned for you. Second, my heart. Be mindfully seeking to have your desires shaped by the Word of God through the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Be mindful of that. Learn to ask, God, what is your will for me here? In this, in this, in this. You know, there's so many things, so many decisions that we make throughout the day. So many decisions even that our, that our children make throughout the day. And really the most important question, as I've said, on our minds should be, what is your will for me, Father? Ephesians 5, 15-18 says, let's make the best use of time, for the days are evil. Understand don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's important for our hearts to be open, to be mindfully seeking to have our desires shaped by the Word of God through the working of the Holy Spirit and learn to ask God, what is your will for me? So first, be in the Word. Let your heart be completely open to God's will. Third, prayer. Some of these overlap a little bit, but prayer. Be humbly asking God to enable you to know and do His will in your life. There's another level of prayer, isn't it? You're seeking for God's will. God, help me to see it. You ever ask God something like, God, hit me in the face with your will. I don't want to miss it. Like, help me to see this. Help me to recognize what the next step is. Here's the thing. We as children of God, who are longing to do the will of God, often have this fear. And it's biblically irrational. We have this fear that we're going to accidentally fall out of God's will. Now that doesn't mean we're not 
insistent upon discovering God's will and passionate about it. But how are we with our children? If our children really want to do what we've asked them to do, we want to do everything we can to respond to them and help them to obey those things. How much more, our Heavenly Father? I hear the the voice of Jesus as He taught His disciples to pray when He said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Heavenly Father want to give the Holy Spirit good things to those who ask Him? See, it's God Himself who worked that willing heart in you to begin with. And so He's not going to frustrate your willing heart. He's going to bring you into His will. He's not interested in playing hide-and-seek with you. He's a God who reveals himself. So, the word first. Be filled with the word. Let your heart be open to God's will in everything. Third, be prayerfully and humbly asking God to enable you to know his will and to do his will in your life. That's that's what Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew 6.10 Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done. Fourth, or letter D. Others are an important part of this as well. This is your path to discovering God's secret will. Others, be teachably asking the godly people who love you most and know you best what they think God's will is for you. Now that sentence has a huge qualification in it, doesn't it? You don't ask anyone. You don't ask anyone, what do you think God wants me to do? What do you think I should do? There's one kind of person that you should ask in this pursuit. It's those who know you best and love you most. They will lead you in a godly way if they are believers. We're assuming that, right? We're assuming that they are people that are in the Word and godly. That's a very important thing because so often in counsel, people can counsel you to do something that is benefiting to them. And sometimes they don't even realize it. And that's dangerous. You want a counselor who is going to advise you to do what is best for you, even at great cost to themselves, and brings glory to God. So it's important that whom you ask about these things is someone who knows you very well and loves you sacrificially. And then E, repentance is important in this discovery. Repentance. Be seeking to walk in repentance and faithful submission to God in every area of your life that you're aware of. By God's grace, obey God in both His commands and prohibitions. And where you fail, seek to walk in repentance and faith as soon as you can. What are we talking about here? Well, repentance and faith is a way of life for the Christian. And and no one is going to be sinless. And there are many things in in all of our lives that we don't even know yet that we're struggling with. God has to reveal those things to you. Have you ever had that sort of experience? I'm sure you have. If you're a child of God, you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was an issue in my heart. But God reveals those things. And He reveals them in His time and in His way and through His means. But that doesn't mean that you just are relaxed about it all. Whatever you know, whatever you know, whatever the the Lord has revealed to you needs to grow and change, and whatever you need to repent of and be waging war against by the Spirit to overcome sin issues and so on in your life, be be after that in repentance and, and faith toward Christ. 
Don't expect God to reveal to you His secret will if you're disregarding His revealed will. Doesn't that make sense? Go with the light you have and you'll get more. It's very important for us. The the sixth word is the word desires. Be carefully, watchfully following the word-shaped, spirit-led desires of your heart. Here's the idea, and this is, this is very freeing. If those preliminaries are in place, the Word, your heart's open to God's will, you're asking Him to show you and enable you to do it, you're bringing others, you're walking in repentance, then you have a freedom in Christ to prayerfully follow the Word-shaped, Spirit-formed desires of your heart. Do what you want. That's the scary way of putting it. <laughs> Because if the Spirit of God has guided your desires and formed them through His Word and you're walking in repentance, then guess what? Your heart is most likely seeking what God wants for you. Because He's done it. He's brought you there through the Word, through influences, through repentance, and so on. And remember, as you do, you can often pray, God, prevent me. I want to do this. I want to go this way, but stop me if it's the wrong way. And He will. Oh, He will. And he is good like that. And he's merciful. Because we may make mistakes, but then he plans those mistakes into his providential plan too. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. Your heart's open to him. A seventh word. Now providence. So we've talked about the word in this. We've incorporated the word. We've, talked, we've incorporated prayer. But here's where providence comes in. You're seeking to freely follow your own desires that Christ has shaped in you. And at the same time, you are to be prayerfully watchful for God's providential hand to create the opportunity for your desires to be fulfilled. You're watching God to make the way open. Sometimes we call that open doors, right? And I'm not sure if I like that wording all the time, but you're watchful for God to providentially make the opportunity for you to righteously fulfill your desires. That's how he worked in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's life. Right? His providence was working all through that, and they could step into the opportunities that God had made for them. But sometimes you, you, need, to, you need to be watchful with that because sometimes God's providence not only creates the opportunity for for those desires to be fulfilled, but sometimes God's providence prevents those desires or puts them on hold or redirects them. Lovingly, God's providential hand will lead you to, no, wait, this way, not that way. So you're seeking in the expression, the pursuit of that good desire to watch for God's hand to make the opportunity, whatever it may be. And that comes about through so many practical means. Does God provide for this to happen? Does God bring this person into contact for you for this to happen? All of it. There's so many different... There's, a, there's an incalculable number of circumstances that can come together to make an opportunity for you to fulfill God's will. Watchful. That's that's what we're called to, prayerfully watchful. Now the last one, the last word is discernment. Finally, we must be careful to discern 
between God's providential opportunities to fulfill our righteous desires and temptations to sin that have been crafted by the evil one or selfish human desire. Now, sometimes the opportunities that God brings can look a lot like the temptation to fulfill a desire as well. And that's where the difficult part comes in. But it's actually not that difficult in some ways. You, will, you say, well, how do we recognize that? Here's the simple way. We recognize the difference between a providential opportunity and a temptation to sin in a very simple way as we are walking into an opportunity if at any point along the way we have to violate a principle or command in God's Word, God's revealed will, in order to continue, we must stop and realize this is not an opportunity, but a temptation to sin. You see? That's the simple stop sign that we get. You're going along the way. I want to do this. This seems like an opportunity, but all of a sudden something comes up in your life where in order to keep pursuing that will, that desire, you have to violate God's revealed will. Then you know it's a temptation to sin and not an opportunity. And so you stop and you back up and you wait on God's timing. And that behooves us then to really know the word, doesn't it? Because I've got to have in my mind as I'm going along these providential roads and looking for God's opportunity, I've got to know when what I'm about to do is a clear violation of God's will. That's how I know to stop. At that moment, we are to stop and patiently and prayerfully wait until God providentially brings us an opportunity to fulfill our righteous desire in the pursuit of which no biblical principle or command need be violated. The providential unfolding of God's secret will is always in perfect harmony with His holy ways and His perfect time. When we keep a close eye on God's holy ways and His word as we are pursuing the unfolding of His will, His providence will lead us into His perfect time. A really good example of this, other than Ruth and Naomi, is Jesus. Remember the temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness? Satan was tempting Jesus right there. Why don't you do this and see if God will rescue you? Why don't you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple? See if God will rescue you. God has promised to rescue you. And another thing he said, well, why don't you bow down to me and then you'll get all the nations of the earth. God had promised him that too. See, those were two things that were good that God had promised to his son. I will raise you up from death, right? Didn't, didn't he promise that? Yes. And didn't God promise that all the nations will be your inheritance? And so what Satan was tempting Jesus with was God's will, God's promise, but at the wrong time and, and to receive it in the wrong way. And so Jesus saw it. This was not the opportunity because immediately in the pursuit of that, he had to violate God's will. He would worship someone other than God and he would pursue it 
in a way that was not God's will. He wouldn't pursue it through the cross. God had meant and promised to give Jesus all of those things through the road of the cross. And so this is where where Naomi went wrong, in in my estimation of, of this book. Where Naomi and Ruth, they saw good things in the Word of God and went to pursue them, but all of a sudden, she's pursuing it in a way that puts two people in a very precarious situation. She had everything else in place. She knew the Word. She was in prayer. She was watching God's providence. Her desires were formed. And she was waiting for a providential opportunity. But in the pursuit of what she thought was an opportunity, sending Ruth in the middle of the night to propose to a man, she pursued that opportunity in such a way that she had to put two people in great temptation and in great potential for destroying their excellent testimony before the covenant community. There's where she stepped too far. There might have been another way to pursue this. But even still, God was so kind, wasn't he? And that's, that's the story of God's unfailing love that even in this estate, even in this oversight, God led them into his faithful plan. Naomi should have pursued, encouraged Ruth to pursue Leverett marriage to Boaz at a different time, in a different context. A time and context which was consistent with God's ways and God's time. Again, Naomi's issue was not what she desired or lack of knowledge of God's word or prayerlessness, but rather the timing and the context of the pursuit of her desires. God's will, God's ways, and God's time are always in perfect harmony. And so it's very important that we as God's children learn to follow God's will in his way in His grace, and for His glory. And this is where we turn to Christ. Because who is Christ for us? He is our good shepherd, isn't He? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He pursues us with steadfast love and mercy all the days of our life. Let the, Ruth of story, let, let the story of Ruth so deeply convince you that God, being full of steadfast love for us, will sovereignly lead us by His providence for our good and for His glory, that we want nothing else but to follow His will in all things. A second, uh, <clears throat> sixth lesson, second for today, that I, that I want to share with you from, from Ruth is recognizing a godly spouse. Again, I think it's important that we not Overlook this one as well. Recognizing a godly spouse. And I'm looking primarily with this in Ruth chapter 2 verses, chapter 2 through chapter 4. How do you recognize the man or woman that God has planned for you to marry? And I think this is a very important thing for us to talk about as well. Again, because we have many young people that have begun to think about these things and are growing up in in these sorts of thoughts, which is wonderful that the Lord has brought us to this time in the life of our church. But also, you will be asked, how do I know? Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, church leaders, so on. You will be asked, how do I know? Someone will ask you, how do you know who the right one is to marry? One of those things that is in the secret will of God that we long to know 
And really, one of the first questions that we should ask ourselves in discovering this is, what should attract you to a potential spouse? You start with yourself. What should attract me to the person that God may have for me to marry? And and there are so many worldly desires that are bombarding our affections every single day. And so we must learn to be attracted primarily by that which God has graciously wrought within a man or a woman. We need to be attracted by what God considers precious, like he talks about in 1 Peter 3. Both Ruth and Boaz were described in this book by the same word. Remember that word? Excellent. Worthy. You can see it. Look in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. And I'll ask you to go ahead and turn to Ruth if you're not there already, because there were, there's a lot of different verses along the way that I'm just going to touch on, but I'd like for you to see them as we go. Ruth 2 and verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Worthy, excellent. Same word that we find in Proverbs 31 for the excellent woman. Same word. Also, Ruth was described by this word in the story. If you turn over to chapter 3, look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Boaz is speaking to Ruth. He says, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Excellent. She, she had this godly quality about her, as did Boaz. And then again, in chapter 4, verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily. So this was also part of the blessing of the townspeople upon Boaz. Act worthily, act with excellence, with godliness in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. So the question then is, what does that person look like? What does a person of excellence look like? What should this person that I'm hoping to marry look like? And so I have a few qualities that, I'm, that I've seen throughout the time of our study. First, a person of repentance, faith, and growing godliness. You see this so clearly. Boaz is drawn to Ruth because she is a woman of repentance and faith and godliness. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What attracted Boaz's eyes? You see that? It's a really great setup, isn't it? What attracted Boaz's eyes? Why did he take notice of her? Look at Boaz's answer. Verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, 
The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What is Boaz saying? I am attracted to you. You got my notice. You got my attention. Because you abandoned your false gods and your land and your family, and you've embraced Ruth, you've embraced Naomi and our people and Yahweh. You've come to take refuge under Yahweh's wings. That's why I've noticed you. What a great lesson for us to learn. This is a very important quality. You look for someone who is walking by God's grace in repentance, faith, and growing godliness. And he says that to her again in chapter 3, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You, you've made this last kindness greater than the first, in which you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. See, this is, this is the other side of the coin as well. Ruth did not pursue sensual desires going after young men in that way, whether they have money or not. She pursued relationship or was open and responsive to relationship that worked inside of God's plan for her to show steadfast love to her mother-in-law. She sacrificed herself and pursued someone that could come alongside of her and fulfill God's purposes for them together. Here's the way we've said this so many times before. No missionary dating. Right? It doesn't work. You know, so many people think, you know, well, I, I, I really like this guy. I really like this girl. And I'll, and I'll take them to myself, and, and they can be my boyfriend or girlfriend, and I'll tell them about Jesus, and I'll have a Bible study with them, and they'll probably get saved, and so on. Don't do it. Don't do it. It sets everything up to be pretentious. Of course, if that guy or girl wants you, they're going to have a Bible study with you. And they may even profess Christ. Why? Because they want to have you. Well, then you set them up for false conversion. No, no missionary dating. You seek the person who is already, by God's grace, repenting, trusting, and growing in godliness. This is the most important thing up front. It's so important. Trust God. That's what this is, right? Because you're like, man, there's, there's no one else. I'm never going to get married. Trust God. God's providence will bring about everything that He has determined according to His will. and It'll be good. Trust Him. Second, devoted to God's Word. Look for someone who is devoted to the Word of God. How can I, where do I see this in, in the story of Ruth? Well, first, look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Chapter 2 and verse 2, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Where did Ruth get this idea of going and, and doing what was necessary to sustain them? to go and pick ears from, from the edges of the field, to pick grain. Well, that's, that's what God's Word instructs her. So clearly, she, she's been thinking about the Word of God. Maybe Naomi's been teaching her the Word of God. But she is doing things that apparently are pre- being prompted by the Word of God at work in her heart. Look at Boaz as well. 
First of all, look what's on his mind when he shows up to the field. Chapter 2, verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. See, why, why was Boaz already prepared with all this? Why was he keeping the edges of his field? And why were there other women and men gleaning there? Why would, I mean, this is a man who is following the word of God. His, his farming productivity here has incorporated into it God's law of leaving the edges for those who are in need. So his, the Word of God is already at work in Boaz's life, and it's already shaping him. And that is what brought them together. That is an incredible principle in this. They were both pursuing the knowledge of God's Word. They were both seeking to live in obedience to God's Word. And in that pathway, God brought them together. If Boaz hadn't have been doing that, his field wouldn't have been a candidate for Ruth to go and glean at, right? And if, and if Ruth hadn't have been looking to God's will instead of some other human way of providing for her and Naomi, she wouldn't have gone to Boaz's field. This is amazing. It was the pursuit of the knowledge of God's word and their faithful application of God's word to their own lives that God used to providentially bring them together. Again, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, and I won't read all of the parts of this, but you see Boaz's absolute commitment to the Word of God in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, where, where when he hears what Ruth and Naomi desire from him, he, he doesn't just say, ah, right, great, you like me, I like you, let's go ahead and do this the way we ever want to do it. Who cares what anybody else thinks? No, he follows the whole path of God's will. He says no to himself. And he says, let's be careful here. Let's our, let our testimony be sound. You know, you, you go home and I'll get busy and, and bring accountability into this and submit to the plan of God's law all the way through. That's exactly what Boaz did. His heart was submitted to the Word of God all the way through. Thirdly, committed to selfless sacrificial service. This is the kind of spouse that you're looking for. Repentance, faithful, growing in godliness, devoted to God's word, and then their lives, their lives look like selfless, sacrificial service wherever God gives opportunity. You can see this as Ruth goes to glean. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. Chapter 2, verses 17 to 19. Chapter 2, verse 23. Ruth's life right now is taken up from one end of the day to the other with work. She's serving. Why? To meet the needs of Naomi. To meet her own needs. To, to serve in steadfast love. Both Ruth and Naomi, were, both Ruth and Boaz were changed by God's grace and living lives that were filled with steadfast love. Sacrificial service for the good of another. For the glory of God. It was in their service-filled lives that then God led them to serve one another 
and recognize a life partnership for godly service to the covenant family of God. That's what's amazing about this. You can see, so this number six today is really fleshing out number five. Because you see Ruth and Naomi, or Ruth and Boaz doing this. They're, they're taking in God's word. They're seeking to obey it. They're seeking to live in a life of service. And in that, God providentially brings them together. It's absolutely amazing. And Boaz is the same way. What a servant this man is. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. I will read his section. It's just breathtaking to me. Verse 14, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Boaz is serving her in this. And after he has set his life up to service for the community, when she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. And then again in chapter 3 and verse 15, And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her and she went into the city. They're both living in selfless, sacrificial, generous service to others. And that's what God used to bring them together. Letter D, while serving, while serving like that, they begin to embrace their God-ordained roles. Something to look for. While they're serving like this, do you see this person beginning to embrace his or her God-ordained role? What do I mean by this? It's very close to the one before it. But I want you to think about something here. Ruth, all the way through, is being very submissive to the authority that God has placed over her life. And we'll, we'll look at this again in just a bit, but she's, she's submissively fitting Naomi at this point. And then she becomes that sort of responsive, submissive heart to Boaz as well when he instructs her what to do for her own blessing. You never hear Ruth Ruth complaining. She's contented. She's strong. She's a strong helper. She very much fits how God describes Eve in the Garden of Eden, a strong, fitting helper. In fact, that word, uh, helper who is fitting in, in... in uh, Genesis chapter 2, is a word that God often takes for Himself all throughout Scripture. He is a strong helper to Israel again and again and again. This is Ruth. She is working very hard. She's a strong helper, fitting in a submissive way to, to the authority that God has placed in her life. And then she responds that way to Boaz. She's beginning to see her role in her service. But Boaz is the same. You see in chapter 2, verses 8 through 16, and chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, that, that, that Boaz is a self sacrificing protector and provider. And those are the words that you, you see God give to Adam in the garden tend and keep, provide and protect. Those are the words. And you see that over and over again with Boaz as he says, he provides a way for her to not be interrogated by the other male servants and, and so on. 
He protects her. He protects her reputation. He protects her from himself in the middle of the night. He protects her all the way through. And as he's protecting her from from sinful things, he's also heaping upon her generous blessings and gifts. There is a godly selflessness in the pursuit of their roles. They both give so much for the good of others and begin to take on this role of a fitting helper and a sacrificial protecting provider. Very important qualities to look at in a potential spouse. Letter E. Godly communication. How does this person talk? Well, Boaz, again, you see it. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Notice, for example, chapter, verse 12 in chapter 2. Um, Chapter 2, look at, look at what is said of Boaz there. He says, let's see, looking at, trying to find this. Ah, there it is. It's actually verse 13. So Boaz speaks to Ruth, and then she says in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken what? Kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. One of one of the most blessed things in reading through this story is to hear how Boaz speaks to Ruth. Has something so important. How does a young man talk to you? How does a young man talk to his mother? How does he talk to his father? How does he talk to his friends? How a man talks reveals so much about his heart. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And even, notice, <laughs> when he was really put up to the test, Ruth chapter 3, verse 9 through 15, when he's awakened in the middle of the night, <laughs> verse 9, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, what in the world are you doing? Are you crazy? No, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's so kind and gracious and gentle with her leading her in the right way. Shepherding. He's a wonderful, godly shepherd. Again, all of this is a result of God's grace at work in these two sinners' lives. Gentleness and kindness, even in the presence of a great misstep. You see that in Boaz. Ruth as well. And what I see in her is humility. Her speech is humble. She's not manipulative but attentive and honest and appropriately responsive. She's humble. She's not manipulative with her words, but she's attentive and honest and appropriately responsive. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. She fell on her face and bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And verse 13. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She's grateful. She's humble. And apparently she listened to Boaz's initiating words when he said in verse 12, may your reward be full, given to you by the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge because she responds in kind. She's very attentive and then she's responsive 
to Boaz's initiation there with words, even when Naomi sends her on this interesting mission. Um, notice what Ruth says in chapter 3, verse 9. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Aha, spread your wings over your servant, for you are Redeemer. She's picking up there on what Boaz said to her. She said, would you be that for me, please? I need you, basically, right? So what you see here in Ruth is humility. She's not manipulative. She's attentive. She's honest and appropriately responsive. In fact, I would say that compared to the way that Ruth speaks with Boaz throughout the story, going to him in the middle of the night at the threshing floor, the way Naomi commanded her to, is probably a bit out of character for Ruth. doesn't sound like something she would do. What I hear in this story when the two of them are going along on their own is Boaz taking the initiative by speaking with kindness and gentleness. I mean, he's the one who approached her to begin with and offering his sacrificial service to her for her good and Ruth responding appropriately by speaking with humility, honesty, attentiveness. This is indeed the way it should be. And it is fitting with God's design for men and women. A godly man will take the initiative in this loving, sacrificial gentleness and a godly woman will respond with humility and attentiveness in this way. And then, this is the last one, submission to authority and accountability. This is an important part, not just for Ruth, but Boaz as well. And I want you to see this clearly. You see Ruth's submission in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. She submitted herself to those who knew her best and loved her most. And that's Naomi at this point. Even though her advice, I believe, was misguided, God still protected Ruth and Boaz and blessed them graciously. And Ruth remained accountable to Naomi. Did you notice that? All the way through. Both chapters 2 and 3 conclude with Ruth going home to Naomi and recounting for her all that had happened and all that she had done to serve her and submit herself to her. And so Ruth, having been changed by God's grace and having been filled with a sense of gratitude, is living in gracious submission and accountability to the one whom God has placed as authority in her life. And Boaz does the same thing. And you see it very clearly in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Boaz does not run ahead with his own plan. God, or Boaz, is submitting himself to those whom God has delegated his authority. He's submitting himself. He was submissive to the elders of of the covenant community and openly accountable to those elders and the witnesses of his covenant family. He didn't run away with his selfish impulses. He did not carry out his own way in secret. He openly submitted himself to God's word, to the authority of the elders, and the accountability of the community. He voluntarily invited the input of the covenant community so that all that he would all that he would do and be would be honoring to God, beneficial to Naomi and Ruth, and the covenant community. Again, that's that's the grace of God on display. And it's very important to look for in a, in a potential spouse. You don't want a spouse that is a rebel. You want a spouse that is submissive to the will of God and to those whom God has delegated his authority in their life. It is incredibly important. Now, those are qualities that I see in this story, and they are very helpful to guide us to recognize the spouses that God has prepared for us. But you might, not, but you might say, 
as you think about these, well, I'm not sure if Mr. Wright or Miss Wright is here yet. What should I do in the meantime? Date as many people as you can. I'm just kidding. No, don't do that. Here's, here's the goal. Here's the point. First and foremost, become like the one you want to marry. You know, sometimes we think that way selfishly in our hearts. We're like, boy, I want this person. I want to have a spouse like this and like this and like this. And you're like, will I be that kind of a spouse to them? Did you see what I mean? That's the first thing is our own hearts must be changed. Become like the one you want to marry. You pursue these qualities yourself actively by the grace of God. In fact, if that spouse is right, they're going to be pursuing you for the same reasons. And then secondly, pray for the one that God is preparing for you to marry. And by that, I do not mean, God, please send me a spouse. What I mean by that is, God, somewhere, it's your will for me to have a spouse. There is a young man or a woman who is growing up. Please save them. Please change them. Please let them be this. Let them be, let me be like this. Let them be like this. Work all these things out for your will. Make them Make them devoted to your word. Help them to love your word. Please keep them from sin, and so on. Pray for that one. Just think about that. Young people, think about it. Somewhere in the world, there is likely, just based on statistics, someone that God has prepared for you. Are you praying for them? Are you praying for them? God may use your prayers to bring you together with them and craft them just for you as he crafts you for them according to his will. And think about it this way. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And just think about that it very well may be that one of the good things that God is going to equip you with so that you can do his will, so that he can work in you, is a godly spouse. God is capable of shepherding you to just the one he has prepared for you. Finally, and thank you for your, your kind attention with this this morning and, and love for God's word, I have one more point that I'd like to just, just go through very briefly. Trading earthly temporal calculations for heavenly eternal calculations. And I'm not going to read this whole section because we've been through it before. Ruth 4, 1 through 12, is Boaz's encounter at the city gate. And you see him and his desires and purposes in stark contrast with this unnamed nearer redeemer, Mr. Nearer. He does not love the things that Boaz loves. And what I see Boaz pursuing is amazing. First, Boaz is asking himself the question as he works through all this, what will edify others? Right? He's, he's in this actually to benefit Mr. Nearer. And he's also in this working through God's law here to benefit Naomi and Ruth. And second, 
I imagine he asked himself the question, will this benefit the covenant community? Because if you notice in verses 5 of chapter 4, as well as verse 9 and 10, he's pursuing these things in order to. You see these so that phrases. You see these purpose clauses. And, and what you see there is that he's in it to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. What is Boaz after? He's, he's after the, the benefit of his family. He's doing something very sacrificial in an earthly sense to himself for the benefit of the covenant family so that the land would be there, so that blessing can continue, so that offspring in that family line and name can continue, so that God's purposes will be fulfilled. It's an amazing thing. He's, he's forgetting himself at this point. Will this edify others? Will this benefit the covenant community? A third question, will this advance the kingdom of God? And, and basically, I've already touched on it. Boaz was investing himself righteously, selflessly, in the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. He, was, he, wanted, to, he wanted to be used of God to preserve a righteous name, an inheritance, land, produce seed, so that God would fulfill his promises of blessing and through them to become a blessing to the nations. I am convinced that Boaz believed the gospel of the Abrahamic covenant and was living by faith toward that. You see this. This is what is on his mind. This is what was guiding his activities. It must be. Will this edify others? Will this benefit the covenant community? Will this advance the kingdom of God? And then, I just call it the long-range view. It comes from Psalm 90. God, I see this is what Boaz's plan was. Psalm 90, where Moses writes, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, you could ask yourself this question. If what, is what I'm about to do something that I will be glad for when I'm on my deathbed? Do you, you ever think of that? Number my days. Go to the end of your life. Fast forward in your mind to the end of your life. Lay on your deathbed. You're about to see your Savior. And you look back on this moment in the present and you say, will I be glad for having done this or this? That's Moses' wise advice to us. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So as we think about that, what kinds of calculations enter our decisions? Mr. Nearer was all about his pocketbook, all about pleasing himself now in earthly things. What will benefit me? What will benefit me right now? Or... What will benefit others in a godly way? What will benefit God's people? What will advance God's purposes and be used as a means to the fulfillment of His promises? What will advance God's kingdom? What will I be glad that I did when I look back on it from my deathbed, even though it costs me much right now? That's how faithful decisions are made. These are the kinds of decisions that God forms within us by His grace, and then uses to create eternal, redemptive impact like we see in the book of Ruth. I want to be a part of that. Don't you? That's a glorious thing. That God would so use us. This is the way, ultimately, Jesus, our great Redeemer, made decisions as a man living his earthly life, didn't he? 
He, for the joy was set before him, what? Endured the cross. Jesus fast-forwarded ahead the day when he would stand before his father with the host whom he had saved. And he said, it's going to be worth it. I will endure the cross. I want to be like that. I want you to be like that. But there's no way we can be like that in our own strength. So we need the truth. We need to be mindful of the truth of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, as we close this morning, let me, let me ask you, we've been considering so much about God's will for our lives from this final sermon of Ruth. And, and I want to ask you, what commands, what commands from God should most consume our attention if we have not yet been obedient to them? Which ones? What commands, if obeyed, will be the only way that we will be able to enabled to obey any of God's other commands? Which ones come first? Which are, which are most important? You know what? They're the commands of the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Have you? Have you repented? Turn from sin, turn from self-righteousness, turn from idols to follow Christ and trust in him. You know, the commands of the gospel are not an invitation. Have you realized that? We often talk about salvation as if it's take it or leave it. Would you please be saved? No, no, no. Listen, Acts 7, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a command. You are commanded to repent and turn to Christ for salvation. Because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's so much in those little verses. First, God is so patient with you while you do not yet obey his command. He is overlooked and overlooked and overlooked. His patience is there to, to give you room to repent and believe in the gospel. He's so kind to give you time to let you hear this this morning. But he has commanded you to repent because he loves you. He's commanded you to turn from self-righteousness, to turn from things that you pursue to gratify yourself that are sinful against him. And why does he command you to repent? Because there is a day that he has appointed. There is a day that he has appointed that he will judge you if you do not repent. This is not a day to reckon with. It won't go away. Not anything to ignore. He will judge you by the man Christ Jesus. And it says in John chapter 5 that this man, Christ Jesus, his voice will go out and call back to life all who have died. And they will stand before him. And he knows all and sees all and is all-powerful. This is why God commands you to repent and to turn to the Son for salvation. He is patient. He has a command. And there is judgment. 
And if God finds you on that day of judgment still loving your sin and trusting in something other than Jesus alone for your life with God forever, he will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. He will give you just judgment. But God has also made provision with mercy, hasn't he? It says, he has assured us that he will judge by a man whom he has appointed, and he's given assurance to us of his appointment by what? By raising him from the dead. This man Christ Jesus, who will judge all, is also the Savior of sinners. He is the one who lived a perfect life to provide you with righteousness, died on the cross to bear your guilt and your, and your punishment, your eternal punishment. He bore it. And he will call you to life, and he will make you stand blameless before himself on that day of judgment. So, your response will give determination to who Jesus will be to you on that day. Will he be your judge or will he be your savior? So this is why God says to you, repent and trust in Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we want to be a part of all of your eternal redemptive plans. We want to know the joy and the glory of being in your presence, of being shaped into your image, of being transformed in the likeness of Christ. So many things we've talked about today. We want your will, Father, for your glory. All of this works together for your eternal glory, which is our joy. And so, Father, I pray that as we've talked through these things today, that they will press into our hearts. That we will, as your beloved children, walk in your will. That we will, as those children coming up, that we will pursue your will in a godly spouse and that we who are already married will give godly guidance in that way. And Father, that we would sacrifice temporal earthly calculations for eternal heavenly ones. Because I want to be used by you. I want my brothers and sisters to be used by you for your glory. You deserve it. You've purchased us, so you deserve it. We are happily your slaves for life, for eternity. And so, Father, we pray that if there is one here or listening online that has not yet obeyed the command to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that they would do so today. Father, don't let them leave this day without coming before you and pleading with you to show them mercy and trusting in Christ and grieving over their sin and, and desiring to turn from it. And Father, if if there is still yet confusion in their mind about the gospel and the way of Christ, please let them seek one of us out today to call, to, to, to send an email, to send a text, whatever it may be, to reach out, to speak in person so that they can have assurance that they are a child of yours. Father, please do this. 
Please save. Please sanctify. Help us. We need you. And may we be for your glory in this community. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.